Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. It is for us very important that in the midst of our temptation, we remember who we are because we're not just the next person who has to in life deal with struggles and temptations and situations and frustrations and unmet needs the way the rest of the world does. According to the Bible, we are children of the King. in a culture that loves instant gratification. In fact, we tend to become quite displeased when we have to wait for anything. When we're in a situation we don't particularly like, our natural instinct is to change it at any cost, to get what we want. But are we acting according to God's will? Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is presenting a message he has called Godly Advice for Those Tempted to Sin. It's from the series titled Dear Abby. In 1956, Pauline Phillips began writing what would become the most popular newspaper column of all time. Under the assumed name of Abigail Van Buren, Dear Abby started to receive letters at the clip of 10,000 a week. Questions about life and relationships and such. And if you've read the column, and I'm sure you have over the years, at least some of the time, her responses and the questions are quite amusing like this one that I read recently. It said, Dear Abby, our son was married in January. Five months later, his wife had a 10-pound baby girl. They said the baby was premature. <laughs> Tell me, Abby, can a baby be this big and be that early? <laughs> Signed, wondering. Now, the question was amusing enough, but her answer was even better. Dear Abby responded in her newspaper column, Dear Wondering, the baby, it was on time. The wedding, it was late. <laughs> Here's a good one. I, Dear Abby, I'm a 44-year-old person who would like to meet a man my own age with no bad habits. <laughs> Dear Abby responded, three words, so would I. <laughs> Dear Abby, are birth control pills deductible? That was the question. Her answer, only if they don't work. <laughs> if you didn't get that, you will. Just keep thinking it through. <laughs> Recently, I read an article that asked her about her, her career and her life in doing all this. And they asked her, why did you choose the pseudonym Abigail Van Buren? And she responded, well, I chose Van Buren, of course, after the eighth President of the United States, because it sounded like such an aristocratic name, and I liked it. They asked her, why did you choose the name Abigail for your column? And she pointed them to 1 Samuel chapter 25, and she said, because I'd like to be like her. And if you have a Bible this morning, I'd like to point your attention to 1 Samuel 25 and view for a few moments with me the namesake of Dear Abby the gal who gave some of the best advice in all of the Bible because it related to a relationship that was much more important than your relationship with your boss or your relationship with your neighbor or even your relationship with your family. The dear Abby of the Bible gave 
advice about the most important relationship of all, and that is keeping your relationship with God pure. She felt that that was important, and though some may question her motives, I think they're sincere. She is saying to David, if you cross that line and compromise your, your life, if you don't do what God wants you to do, it will be a tragic thing because God, your God, demands in your life holiness. And that is epidemic in our church that we've missed that concept. And in our lives as Christians, we have an enemy that is seeking, according to 1 Peter 5, for someone to devour. He's like a roaring lion and he's looking to take someone out. Now, why is it that Satan would have a vendetta against us? Well, he really doesn't. He has no beef or no bone to pick with us. He's just shrewd and he's wise. And he knows the best way to get at his enemy, God, is to get at God's children. That's why when we become Christians, we have an automatic enemy and he's out to do something in our lives to dismantle and destroy our walk of faith, our walk of sanctification, our progress in holiness, because he knows if this week he can get you to compromise, he will disgrace the Father, he will in our lives allow us to fall short of what God wants us to be. He'll dismantle our integrity, we'll lose our reputation as a church, we will cease to be all that we were called to be as a called out separate group from the rest of the world. And we're called to be lights reflecting the glory of Christ in a dark place. And if you this week give in to your sin, whatever the sin is that so easily entangles you, you cash in what God wants us to be, you cash in what God calls us to do. And so Abigail comes in like a lifeguard rescuing a drowning man who is there wanting to live for God, but drawn in by the flesh to do something he knew was wrong. We saw it in the previous chapter. Taking your own revenge was wrong, but caught up in the moment, here is David about to strike a man and take his own revenge. And Abigail sweeps in and says, wait a minute, is sin really worth it? Is it really worth it for you to cash in your integrity? by killing Nabal. And in so doing, she prevented him from committing a gross sin and in his life doing more than just saving him a future of good memories, but in his life saving the reputation of God, saving the intimacy with God that he'd grown accustomed to. And in our lives, I would hope that 3,000 years after the fact, we might learn from a gal who gave some good advice, four things to think about as it relates to realizing that sin is never worth it. Now, if you look at the passage, you'll notice it begins in verse 1 with a little bit of context. It tells us that Samuel, the great prophet of Israel, had died. The sage, the one that they looked to, the one that anointed David as a symbolic act to show that he would be the next king, he's dead. And David is still in the desert. He's wandering in the desert with only a few outcasts that recognized him as king. In light of the entire population of Israel, it was such a small percentage. 600 people had said, we believe you're the king, we'll follow you, we'll go wherever you go, and we'll be a part of your band, a part of your kingdom. But they were pushed to the outskirts of the kingdom, wandering in the desert. Now, one of the problems you have when you are the leader of 600 people that are rebels, outcasts from the kingdom with a price on your head, is you have a hard time feeding that many folks. And that was just a natural problem they encountered. And in chapter 25, what we see is that David gets involved in a little bartering for food. He, because he is an ethical leader of this band of 600 men, chooses not to overpower weak people to get his food. He decides instead, when he comes upon huge flocks by this man that was extremely rich, to say, we'll protect you. 
We'll protect you from the raiders. We'll protect you from anybody that wants to come and steal your sheep. And so these 600 men surrounded these humongous herds that were part of the wealth of this man named Nabal. And when it came time for the sheep shearing in the time of Israel's calendar, which was a great time of festivities and feasting and all the generosity usually overflowed in the hearts of people during this time, David said, now's a good time to see if Nabal, this rich man, will give us anything back for the protection we provided his shepherds and his employees for so long. And so he sends a delegation to Nabal and he says through his delegation, hey Nabal, we've provided you with a lot of service out here in the desert. We have for you been like a huge insurance plan against the devastation of your crops and against the devastation that could come upon your shepherds and your employees and your sheep and your donkeys and your camels. Would you please consider just giving us something in exchange for that? Whatever is in your heart, whatever generosity you can, you can spare us, would you give us something? And because David chose to be ethical and chose to do things properly and chose to ask and not demand, he expected to find something coming back in this delegation. Instead, all he gets is a report that Nabal blew his men off and said, no, I don't owe you anything. Why should I give you anything? I didn't ask you to protect my flocks. Who knows? Who are you anyway? You a runaway slave of some kind? There's lots of people running around the landscape and claiming to be someone important. Forget it. If you want to eat something, go find something in the desert. I'm not giving you any of my stuff. And because of this cruel response from this old ogre that owned so many things and could easily have spared part of his flock, David's flesh was enraged against Nabal. And he said, you know what? I may hold my hand back from the Lord's anointed, the king of Israel, even when he's out to kill me. But this punk, if he starts pushing me around, I'm taking him out. And in the midst of this, he tells his men when he hears the news, strap on your swords, boys, because we're going out hunting. And we're going to hunt down every male employee in Nabal's kingdom. And we're going to kill them all. And just as he's preparing for war, with his eyes ablazed with revenge, Abigail, the wife of Nabal, hearing what had happened, gets on her donkeys quickly with a huge supply of gifts, and she runs out with her servants to the desert. Pick up the story with me in verse 23. She comes on the scene, and she finds David, and she says, My Lord, look at it, verse 24. Let the blame be on me alone. Look at the context, though. Verse 23. She's bowing down. She gets off her donkey. She bows before David, her face to the ground, and she says, Adonai which is a word not just used for God, though it is, it's used also for high-ranking officials. It's much like saying, your majesty. And she says to him, your majesty, let the blame be on me alone. Let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. <laughs> Here is David marching out into the modern-day equivalent of a barroom fight. And Abigail, in her strategy to defuse the situation, says to him, uh, king, <laughs> important person, prince of Israel, your loyal subject would like just a few words with you today. Now, can you imagine what that might do to him and his whole mindset as he's buckling his fist up, getting ready to go take Nabal out? It was a subtle reminder of who David really was. She knew he was the anointed prince of Israel. She knew he was the next king in the kingdom. She knew how important he was, but in the midst of his temptation. David had kind of forgotten all that. Now he's just an offended shepherd boy who wants to go out and take this guy out because he'd been cruel to him. There's a huge application here for us, and it's found on almost every page of the New Testament. 
It is for us very important that in the midst of our temptation, we remember who we are because we're not just the next person who has to, in life, deal with struggles and temptations and situations and frustrations and unmet needs the way the rest of the world does. According to the Bible, we are children of the King. We are, in the New Testament, called, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty, quote-unquote. Do you recognize that in that passage, he is appealing to people in the New Testament to say no to sin? And one of the strategies of the Bible has always been, you can say no to sin when you start to recognize what a dignified position you hold in God's mind. You are not just the average Joe. You are a child of the king. And as Christians, that may help us Thursday afternoon when we are lured into something that we really know for a child of God is inappropriate. And if we just start thinking, I am a child of God, I am adopted into the royal family, in God's mind, I am dignified. And right now I'm about to do something very undignified. It may help us dismantle it three times with these words. The Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, you are to live a life worthy of your calling. That's a powerful statement. I am to live a life that is worthy of my high calling. And one of those phrases that he uses in 2 Thess, he says, we're to live a life worthy of our calling because we have been called into his glory and his kingdom. In God's mind, he looks at us and says, I know you were just a normal person before you were saved, but now as a Christian... You are part of the kingdom of God, which is ruled by a whole different set of principles. And that ought to motivate you to think with just a little bit more dignity when you step into sin in your life. And all of us are tempted to sin, and every sin we're tempted to commit is really, if you want to put it this way, this may sound haughty, but it's really beneath us. Remember the play Annie? The opening scenes of this play, she's in the orphanage and doing what orphans do. She's dressed in dirty clothes. Her hair's a mess. She's running around picking up stray animals. She's stealing apples from the apple cart. She's hitching rides on the back bumper of taxi cabs through town. She's just being an orphan. But of course, in this story, Oliver Warbuck's secretary comes, takes Annie into his mansion. He falls in love with Annie, decides by the end of the story to adopt her, and by the closing scenes of the story, she's dressed in nice, beautifully pressed clothes with her dog there with shampooed hair and a ribbon around his neck, and she's standing there singing, looking perfect, living in the most expensive mansion in the whole city. Now, she's an orphan at heart. She's been there, done that. She's streetwise. She knows how to catch rides on the back of bumpers, but now she's a child of the richest person in town. And now if she needs a ride, she should call the butler and get the limousine to be pulled around. And if she wants something to eat, she should call the maid because she doesn't have to fend for herself anymore. She's been adopted. She's not an orphan. You see the parallel here, don't you? I can see a non-Christian saying, if something in my life is pressing, if I feel a desire to do something, if I think I need revenge or I think I need pleasure or I think I need satisfaction, I just got to do it because I'm on my own here. And I suppose non-Christians have a pretty good excuse. But Christians have no excuse because we have the resources of God. He calls us his father. He says like a father to his child. I'm just waiting to hear your requests. I want to know what you want. I want to serve you. I want to be to you what a dad is to a child. You're not an orphan. If you have a need, if you have a desire, if you think you need revenge, if you think you need satisfaction, you think you need more joy, you think you need more stuff, you don't have to cut corners to do it and you don't have to sin to accomplish it. Would you just ask me? I'm your dad. 
I'm not a struggling dad without a job. I'm the king of kings and lord of lords, and you're a child of mine. Treat yourself with dignity. Don't start acting like the rest of the world, thinking you've got to do what you've got to do when you've got to do it. You don't act that way. It's helpful for me before I cross that line or grab that fruit off that tree and do what God has told me not to, to think, who are, who are you here? And Abigail does it splendidly. Oh, Adonai, your majesty, can your servant have a few words with you here? Because he's about to knock this guy's block off. Well, that's helpful. It's perspective. In the next verse, she turns the attention off of David, and she turns it to the worm on the hook. <laughs> and she says, would you think about the bait here for a second? Take a look at it. Verse 25, may my Lord, that is David, pay no attention to that wicked man Nabal. He's just like his name. His name is fool in Hebrew. Nabal means fool, means foolish. And folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I didn't see the men that my master sent. I didn't see your delegation come, and so I wasn't there to help. But this guy, he's just a fool. He's not worth it. And you know the second thing you and I need to do in the midst of our temptation this week? We need to ponder the bait. We need to ponder for a few seconds, what is it that's luring me into this? Is he worth it? Really? Is it worth it? Some of us are cutting corners in our life to accomplish some kind of materialistic goal in our life that God doesn't have for us. And as we cut corners, as we compromise to get the job, to get the promotion, to get the raise, to get the house, to get the car, to get the vacation home, and as we go after those things, you've got to ask yourself, are those things really worth violating this relationship? In light of who God is and who he's adopted me to be, is anything I'm tempted to go after really worth cutting corners and offending my father? And the answer is going to be, if you ponder that for a few minutes, no. And that's what Abigail is saying. Nabal's not worth it. For you to do something that would put you at odds with God, I'm telling you, Nabal's not the guy. He's not worth it. He's just a fool. Satan paints up the fool, and he paints up the temptation. And he lays it out for us and he says, this is really attractive. You really got to have this. You really need this, whether it's revenge, pleasure, whether it's greedy, materialistic things, whether it's backbiting, criticism, whether whatever it is, it's there and it's shiny for us before we take it. But the moment we take it and we clamp down on the bait, usually that's when Satan walks away and all the varnish comes off and he says, fine, I've accomplished my goal. I've made you in your life compromise. I've disgraced God. I've, I've, I've discredited the church. I mean, you've sinned now and he walks away from it. And when he does, it's funny how quickly our vision clears up and we see, you know, it really is kind of gross. It is disgusting. I can't believe I cashed in my integrity for that person. I can't believe I cashed in my, my integrity for that feeling, for that thing. It was so not worth it. We need to ponder the bait, but not just ponder it. We need to ponder the bait from God's perspective. When God looks down at that scene, he sees the prince of Israel and some old crotchety fool. And he says, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're a prince and, and he's not worth it. Why would you want to do that and compromise the standards of God to get satisfaction on him? He's not worth it. Let me say today, just knowing who God is, I don't care what your temptation is, she's not worth it, he's not worth it, it's not worth it, that's not worth it. In your mind, you need to ponder that. And it's funny how fast our vision clears up. Let me show you one example. Keep your finger here in 1 Samuel 25. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Let me show you a sad day in Israel's history. 
even made more profoundly sad for us because we feel like we've come to know David, and this involves two of David's children. 2 Samuel chapter 13, the story begins with a son of David named Amnon, who was filled with lust for his half-sister, Tamar. Amnon, in his mind, being caught up in lustful sexual desire, he says, I got to have her. He was attracted. He couldn't get through an hour without thinking of Tamar. She was so beautiful to him, and he wanted to have her. His sinful friend suggests the strategy. He says, you know, if you acted like you were sick, you sent out all the attendants, and you brought your sister in and invited her to make you your favorite meal. You could get her in there in your room. You could sit her on the side of your bed. She can be feeding you this meal. And perhaps you can have satisfaction and get what you want. He carries out this plan. And in verse 11, you'll see it. As she's there with this meal in hand, he grabs her and he says, come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she says. Don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? What about you? Using a little logic of Abigail here. She says, you would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Here she's giving him all this reason, but in his mind, I got to have it. I got to have it. And Satan had painted this thing so shiny and the worm looks so delightful. He's got to have it. And look at the next verse, verse 14. He refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. The prince, the child of the king of Israel, rapes his half-sister. Now you're thinking if Satan is good on his promises, that this is really what you want. This is really going to be fulfilling to you. You'd think verse 15 would be filled with a guy who's just greatly satisfied, right? Verse 15, Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, this is worth underlining, he hated her more than he had loved her, or better translate, he hated her more than he had desired her. <laughs> if we could just see that before we cross the line, we compromise to get the money, to buy the stuff we think is going to be so fulfilling, we get it because we've compromised God's word, and then it becomes to us something we hate. It becomes something we despise. When we compromise God's word, we fool ourselves into justifying sin. But sin is never worth it. You're listening to Focal Point. And while we're hitting the pause button on this compelling message from pastor, teacher, and author Mike Fabares, you can listen ahead to the full-length sermon free online at focalpointradio.org. Just look for the title, Godly Advice for Those Tempted to Sin. Well, whether you're a regular listener or today's your very first time joining us, I'm sure you've noticed that Pastor Mike is a straight shooter. He says it like it is, right from Scripture. Because as nice as it is to hear positive messages, they won't equip you to deal effectively with the temptation to compromise God's Word. Those types of messages may make you feel better for a time, but the only thing that will keep us on the straight and narrow is the truth of the Gospel. And that's why we're wholly committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word. Now, if you've been strengthened through this program, will you partner with us so we can continue reaching into hearts and homes with these daily messages? Give online at focalpointradio.org. And when you give a gift of any amount today to support the ministry of Focal Point, we'll send you a copy of Warren Wiersbe's book called The Bumps Are What You Climb On. 
as our way of saying thanks. You know, we can't prevent bumps in the road, but we don't have to let them trip us up. And that's why Pastor Mike and the Focal Point team have selected this insightful and encouraging book as this month's resource. Go online to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Another way to support us is to tell us what radio station you're listening to. We'll thank you with a free pamphlet called Making Sense of Suffering, written by Johnny Erickson Tata. Ask for your free copy when you call 888-320-5885. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again on Wednesday as we continue the series called Dear Abby, right here on Focal Point. Hi, Pastor Mike here. God's Word promises it'll never return void. So I wonder, how is God's Word moving in your heart right now? Drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be praying for you here. Just go to focalpointradio.org. And then be sure to join us again tomorrow right here as we continue to explore the depths of Scripture. We'll see you then. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.